with you this morning. It's a joy to see our transition as we seem to be uh, moving inwards and upwards together. And uh, I just want to um, welcome everybody to Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose. And for those of you who have been traveling, I welcome you back and thankful that you're here with us this morning. And uh, just a, sort of a shout out or a reminder, it was my joy and privilege to gather in prayer this morning. And uh, at I guess around 9:10, Kevin Al leads a group which is now open up to everybody in the church to have a chance to come and pray together before the service. And certainly that was a joy in my heart just to be prayed with and prayed for by members of the congregation. It's uh, one of the precious privileges in my life. And I've been told that the Ringwood boys will provide coffee every Sunday at 9.10. So you can come and pray and have coffee. And then this afternoon uh, will be our last cornerstone for the season. And then we'll break for uh, the summer session. And I would just invite you to join us. Even though it is uh, originally geared towards the premarital group, this is a topic that affects all of us. It's about stewardship specifically in our relationships. And we will touch on what the Apostle Paul touches on with regards to physical intimacy. This is something that has really been distorted in a big way. And churches have had whole conferences on it, and it swung from one way to the other. And yet, as we come to God's Word, the Lord God provides us with everything we need to show us where physical intimacy fits in in the stewardship of the gospel, God's good gift when used in God's good way. Well, with that, let's come to the Word of the Lord. We're back in Genesis 3 this morning, and as I said last week at the members' meeting, one of the reasons we are going through slowly through Genesis 3, and we'll be finishing up Genesis 3 over the next three weeks, Lord willing, um, and then we will take some time a little bit to look at some of the lessons throughout Scripture in Genesis 3. How does Genesis speak to things like anxiety? How does Genesis speak to things like physical illness and ailments? Okay, and as you go through and unpack, you see that this is really the foundation of the gospel. And uh, this is one of my burdens and my reasons for taking so much time to go through this. If we don't understand the beginning, very frequently we get the middle and the end wrong. We get lost. And uh, this morning, I want to take you by way of an illustration or an anecdote. If any of you have spent any time with me, you know I have a terrible sense of direction, naturally. It is part of the fall. Things fall apart. And each of us is broken in a different way. And my inner GPS is terribly broken. It's probably one of the reasons why God brought Julie into my life, to make sure I'd make it to church on Sunday mornings. But many years ago, and through this process of having a terrible sense of direction, I've learned to humble myself and ask for directions. It comes easy to me because I've done it many times. I've had a friend in the past say, Oh, I understand why you give such good directions or why you're willing to stop. It's because you get lost all the time. And 
that's very true if you spend any time with me. And many years ago, I was traveling with two other brothers, two, two Christian young men, and we were traveling through Italy, and we were staying in a little town called Vinci, which is outside of Florence, and we would drive in every day to all the different areas, and we drove into Florence to visit Florence. And late in the evening, as we were getting ready to come home, we discovered that we were doing laps around Florence. We would get off on an exit and we would find out 10 or 15 minutes later, we would say, haven't we seen this place before? And after an hour of doing laps around downtown Florence, of course, the discussion among young men starts. We can figure this out. We can find a way. We've got this under control and all the things that we said to one another to reassure ourselves that somehow we would make it out. But there came a time where there was a time out and said, look, we need to stop and we need to ask someone for help. Especially since downtown Florence was becoming increasingly empty and there was hardly anyone on the streets and things looked increasingly bleak for us to get home that evening. And what was still open was a newsstand, and there were two young men at the newsstand. And so I said, look, I'm happy to get out and ask for directions. Let's stop and let's do this. And so we got out and we asked these two young Italian men, one who worked at this newsstand, Dove Vinci. You know, and we, we were able to persuade or explain to them that we were lost. And after that, these two men broke out in this really loud argument in Italian. They had no idea what was going on. And then finally one of them looked at us and said, follow me. And then he proceeded to walk away and get into a car. And the three of us sat there and said, okay, well, what do we do? Where is this man taking us? Where is this going to end up? Do we follow a total stranger? But we were so lost, we decided we'd take the chance. And sure enough, we followed this man and he drove us through the roundabout. And he drove us to the highway exit that we had missed several times and ultimately he waved us off and he got us home and I say that brothers and sisters because sometimes we forget and especially in this day and age that the Christian life is a journey it's what we're reminded of in Pilgrim's Progress but we forget sometimes that it is a journey that has a beginning and end and for a believer it begins with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and it ends with him where one day we will see him in glory and this world is not our home we are sojourners like Abraham and we're traveling through a foreign and hostile land which should caution us about the value of big homes and kingdoms here on earth our kingdom And our hope and our treasure is not of this world. That's what Jesus explained to Pilate as he stood before him. Well, it's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget that, brothers and sisters. And it's not hard in our lives and our marriages and our worship to get lost. And left to ourselves, not infrequently, we can find ourselves like your pastor found himself in Florence many years ago, doing circles in the dark. Going round and round in our marriages, going round and around in our jobs, going round and around in our church life. Do you find sometimes that the same conflicts in our lives reappear? Do you find that the same discouragements come up over and over again? Do you find 
that certain areas in our lives that we get stuck as we share and discuss with one another, and this is one of the reasons it's helpful to gather together for prayer together as we share, do you find that there are certain prayer requests that seem to come up over and over again in your life? And perhaps God graciously through this is showing you maybe you're stuck or ensnared and there are certain things in which you are lost. And it's not harshness from the Lord, it's kindness because this is where His justice and judgment comes in. Because as we come back to Genesis 3, we see that God doesn't just abandon us to our sin. This is how His justice and judgment, which Garrett prayed about this morning, differs from the justice and judgment of the world. In the justice and judgment of the world, you're condemned and you're kicked aside. But God doesn't do that. God's justice and judgment not only shows sinners how lost we are, and that's something we need to know, it also shows us, brothers and sisters, the way home. If, 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 by faith we are willing to admit that we are lost, if, by faith, we are willing to believe and obey God's Word, if, by faith, we are willing to take God at His Word and take His hand. I talk about this with my boys repeatedly. You can't learn how to obey in a crisis. You have to learn to obey at all times, trusting that your parents love you, that you might not understand completely what is going on. But that following God's Word and taking His hand is what's necessary, brothers and sisters, for life. And in love, this is the place the Lord God's justice and judgment brings Adam in Genesis 3.20. This brings us to our first point this morning. And AV team, could you help me with my first slide? Thank you. Our first point this morning is the justice and judgment of God's Word. In love shows sinners that we must believe and obey God's Word to live. We must believe and obey God's Word to live. When God's justice and judgment comes into our lives, it's not just a smackdown, brothers and sisters. It's showing us that to love God, to follow Him, involves believing and obeying His every word. Now that sounds obvious. But brothers and sisters, very frequently a profession of following Christ frequently for the many people in America who say they're Christians, sometimes it's very hard to tell whether they're obeying and believing the politics of the era, the blogs of the era, the pastor's opinions of the era, or whether we are believing and obeying God's Word. And brothers and sisters, this is what separates those who trust and follow the Lord and those who do not. Believing and obeying God's Word. This is what separates those who will live and those who will die. And God shows us this out of love for His children. To show very clearly, this is the pothole and this is the road home. And it's what the Lord God's justice and judgment reminds Adam and Eve and us in Genesis 3. It's where God's bringing Adam. 
If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis 3, and we will read again from verse 8, and we will read down to verse 21. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, this past week we had yet another mass shooting in America. The difference is this time it took place here in San Jose at a light rail facility. And, brothers and sisters, we've had no shortage of mass shootings. And yet, our nation, and I dare I say even our churches, and our pastors seem to be at a loss at what to do. And so we kind of just move on. And I think it's kind of surprised me, quite frankly, as I've sort of monitored the news over the last several days, that nobody's really talking about this mass shooting anymore. Happens so often, nobody knows what to do with it, we just move on. And I do want to say, brothers and sisters, we need to continue to pray for the victims. We need to grieve over this. Their loss is our loss. This is our nation. This nation belongs to the Lord. This is where the Lord has put us to witness. We need to be heartbroken over it. But we also need to consider the word of the Lord and what it says to this. Even as Jesus says... In the Gospel of Luke, that unless we too repent, we all too will likewise perish. This, brothers and sisters, is a symptom of the lostness, not only of America, but dare I say, much of the Christian church. 
as we struggle with the same issues. And so many of the postings are about guns and and what we do with them. And whether it's legislation on the one hand or celebrating the guns and ammo that we purchase, we've got to come and say, what is the Lord saying to us? And we can't say it's just them in this part of America. Brothers and sisters, it's here and it's now. It's interesting to read the reports about this, where the ex-wife of the man who lit his home on fire and then shot his co-workers and then shot himself. So ex-wife talked about the bitterness and discontent in his life. That he had been bitter and discontent with work for years. And she said, yeah, he could be a really nice guy. But he could also be a very angry guy too. And we stop and say this bitterness and discontent and this blaming others for our problems and being angry as this man was over getting the short end of the stick, saying those other co-workers of his, they got the good jobs and I always got stuck with the bad jobs, the short end of the stick. We see through this, brothers and sisters, that violence and murder and death does not happen overnight. It's a slow cooker process that begins in the heart over years. And brothers and sisters, as we come to Genesis 3, the good news of Genesis 3 is the Lord God shows us this is our world and this is our heart. But He also begins to show us the way out. And in Genesis 3, 1 through 13, the Lord God's justice and His judgment reminds the first man and woman and us, it reminds us as He comes in, where death begins. And brothers and sisters, before we can appreciate life, we need to appreciate death. Where does death begin? And it begins, as God's judgment shows, with a willingness to believe the devil's lies and a willingness to believe our eyes rather than believing the truth of God's Word. That's the point God makes when He says to Adam, because, because you have listened to your wife or you obeyed her who was listening to the devil's lies and you broke my commandment essentially. This is the beginning of sin that disobeys God's Word. It begins, brothers and sisters, with not trusting or doubting the goodness of God and His Word. With believing that perhaps there's a better way. And this is the sin that separates us step by step from the life and love and Lordship of God. Brothers and sisters, from the beginning, this is the way sin always begins. And in Genesis three fourteen through 19... What's beautiful here, brothers and sisters, is rather than abandoning the first man and woman to the devil's lies, God begins to bring His plan of salvation in by stepping in with His justice and His judgment. He does not leave the first man and woman to figure things out on their own, to a life of trying to hide their guilt and their sin with fig leaves and lies and blame shifting. The Lord God intervenes, and He does so by holding them accountable to their sin. Brothers and sisters, it's in love when God comes to His children and shows us, this is where you started to go off and get lost. 
Our pride is offended because we believe we know better. But it's a kindness of the Lord to come in and say, Hey, this is where it started. And He shows everyone where our sin begins and ends. And it begins, as I said, with believing the devil's lies. And brothers and sisters, I say this over and over again because we believe in the devil's lies more often than we think. In the purchases we make, in the careers we choose, in the places we choose, the decisions that we make as we go back, we see, yeah, like John Piper said and many before him, we are more influenced by the world than we care to admit. And it begins with the devil's lies and it ends in the dust. And it's in this way the Lord God shows Adam and Eve and us that our unbelief always ends with a death that is something far greater and more devastating than simply the moment our physical bodies stop. Death, brothers and sisters, begins with unbelief. Death, brothers and sisters, in a relationship and a marriage begins when we begin to doubt our spouse. You'll hear that even from unbelievers. We lost trust in this relationship. I can't trust this person anymore. And then from doubt comes despising and holding someone in contempt. And even unbelievers and psychologists who monitor married relationships begin to show where a marriage becomes irreversible. That place of doubting and despising and all the symptoms of that. Well, God here shows us where death begins. And the death that He shows us as He brings His justice and judgment to bear in Genesis 14 through 19 and walks all of them through what the curse of sin is going to be and what's going to happen. He shows them that death according to God's Word is not just this moment in time where our bodies cease. Death according to God's Word is also a process and a path. Death is also a process and a path. And like the death of a plant, it begins with being separated from sunlight and water. It begins, death begins, with being separated from what gives us life. Death is a path and a process that begins with being separated from the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, even when someone drops dead of a heart attack, and I've signed many of those death certificates, reason for death, cardiac arrest, you know when the autopsy is done, more often than not, the doctors can show that there's been a process going on, typically for a long period of time, before that heart stops beating. Death, brothers and sisters, in our lives, our worship, our marriages and relationships does not happen overnight. And God is so gracious here to show Adam and Eve, the devil sold you on a lie. You will not surely die. But in fact, you did not understand death. Death begins the moment you stop believing in God, His goodness, His glory, and His word. And in Genesis 3... The Lord God shows the first man and woman and us this process of separation. It begins when? It begins the moment Adam and Eve choose to listen and believe the devil's lies. 
the moment they choose to believe their eyes over the Word of God. The moment we stop believing God and His Word are true. And the proof and the fruit of our unbelief in God's Word, brothers and sisters, is our disobedience to His Word. Brothers and sisters, at the moment our lives in any way, shape, and form, our marriages, our work life, starts to veer away from the Word of the Lord, and you won't know that if you don't know the Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters, you'll think it's just fine. The moment it starts to veer off, okay, brothers and sisters, we already know that unbelief in God and His Word, and belief in ourselves or someone else has taken over. John Piper, in his book, Battling Unbelief, says, It is my conviction that unbelief in the promises of God is the root that sustains the life of these sins. And what are these sins he's referring to? Listen to these sins. Anxiety. That's John Piper, not me. Pride. Misplaced shame. Misplaced shame. That's big among Asians. Misplaced shame. Impatience. I was just frustrated and annoyed. Impatience. Covetousness. Bitterness. Despondency. Lust. John Piper, not me. It is my conviction that unbelief in the promises of God is the root that sustains the life of these sins, that keeps them going, feeds them, and grows them all. Okay? And brothers and sisters, as we go through Scripture, this is what comes up over and over and over again, where God pleads with His children, trust me. Believe me, take me at my word that I love you and I care for you and that my word is true and that my word is life. And as we go to Hebrews, this is the very thing. The church is suffering. They had something worse than COVID. They had Jews who hated them and they had the Roman Empire who was stringing them up, throwing them into jail. They had real reasons for not gathering together and not meeting. In Hebrews 2.1, what's the counsel? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Pay close attention to what we have heard. It's the Word of God. Lest we drift away from it. And the point the author of Hebrews is making, lest we drift away, it's this idea that we are a boat. And if we're not careful with our anchor... We can slowly drift and drift and drift. Any of you have spent any time in the water. You know what happens with the undertow. Where in one minute you're in one place and if you're not paying attention, you can be down way further away. It it, it happens when you take your eyes off the shore. When you become distracted with other things. When you're busy and before you know it, the undertow has taken you into a dangerous place. And when in Genesis 2.17, the Lord God promises Adam, He says, in the day you disobey my word, you shall surely die. Contrary to the lies of the serpent, God did not stutter. He did not lie. 
His word is indeed true. He means what he says. His justice and his judgment reminds us, as we come to Genesis 3, that faith and obedience in God's word is a life or death matter. That's because God and His Word are truth and life. Brothers and sisters, do we believe and obey God's Word as if our lives or our family's lives or our children's lives depend upon it? When we make decisions, be it for a job or a conflict, or a problem in our marriages, do we stop, brothers and sisters, to listen carefully and consider, what does God's Word have to say about this? Do we pray and come to the Lord and say, Lord, I am lost. I've been going in circles. Your Word matters. It's life or death. Not only for me, but everybody around me as well. Do we seek godly counsel, brothers and sisters, when we do not know for those who have gone before us? To say, what does the word of the Lord have to say about this? And what do I need to do? Is the heart and burden of our lives, brothers and sisters, to be pleasing to Him? Even, brothers and sisters, if we get the short end of the stick, or it costs us in this life, or it seems according to the world standards, we're the losers and they're the winners. Well, as you go through God's Word, brothers and sisters, and maybe your homework this afternoon, you can read Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20, and 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, Old Testament, New Testament. The Lord goes through this over and over again to remind His children the way in which He loves them is bringing them to a place where they believe He is who He says He is, and they obey His Word. And the justice and judgment of God's Word shows sinners that we must believe and obey God's Word. Why? Well, this comes to our second point. Could we have our second slide, brothers? Thank you. Faith in God and His Word leads sinners to a new life and a new identity in God's Word. Faith in God's Word and faith in God leads sinners out of their sin and into a new life and identity in Him. And brothers and sisters, that's repentance. What is it that brings us out of the darkness? What is it that brings us home? It's God's work, brothers and sisters. And it's His Word. And the way in which we participate in that is by trusting it. And we sit in the same situation many times as I did with those two Italian gentlemen. Are we going to follow this guy or not? And this is what the Lord God shows us in Genesis 3.20. Faith, brothers and sisters, gives us hope. Faith in God's Word gives us life. And we see this, and we begin to see this in Genesis 3.20 in Adam's response to the justice and judgment of God's Word. How does Adam respond to the divine judgment he's just received from God? God, you're not right. You don't understand how hard it is. What would you have done if you were married to this woman? What do you expect me to do? Well, it's interesting, as we come to this point, after 
because that was Adam before. After Adam hears everything that God has to say, first to the serpent, then to the woman, and then to himself. There are no more excuses here. Adam's response to the divine judgment that has just ended with, to dust you shall return, in verse 20, says, Then the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And brothers and sisters, herein lies one of the most, I believe, remarkable acts of faith in God's Word that leads to repentance and a hope of salvation for all of mankind. And to appreciate the meaning and significance of what Adam is doing by calling his wife's name Eve, we've got to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Where God shows us the meaning and significance he attaches to the giving of names. Well, what's Adam doing by renaming his wife here? Well, we've got to go back and see what the giving of names means. We've got to understand the context. And in Genesis 1, not only does God create everything good by His Word, but by His Word, He also gives good names to all of His creation. And throughout Scripture, the giving of a name, and we've dealt with this before, it publicly affirms lordship, Provision, protection, and belonging. But brothers and sisters, it also affirms publicly identity. Identity. Who we are and what we do. And the one who is named derives their life and identity from the lordship, the provision, and the protection of the name giver. And the name given expresses who and what you are, who and what you will be known by, who your Lord is. It's all contingent on that relationship. That is your identity. Now, we live in a place where you make up your identity. You want to be a man? Be a man. You want to be a girl? You can be a girl. You want to be a dog or a cat? You can be a dog or a cat. You make it up as you go. You, as long as you can afford whatever the surgery is, you go for it. America is the place of reinvention where you can be whatever you want, name yourself whatever you want to name yourself. And we understand this, brothers and sisters, even as we think of our sports teams. How that person's identity changes on draft night where they stand up and their hand, they get the handshake and they wear the hat and they wear the jersey and they are no longer that individual. They are associated with the team and the legacy of that team. They are owned by them. Their identity is caught up with them. And wherever they go, they wear that name. I think of our children, brothers and sisters. We gave our boys names, Ethan Chin and Joshua Chin. And that last name comes from me, and those first two names come from their mother and I. And wherever they go until they leave our house, they will be known as our sons, good or bad or whatever. There is no doubt who they belong to. There is no doubt who is responsible for their protection and their care. A name, brothers and sisters, is a gift of love. And that's why even in marriage, brothers and sisters, a wife will take the last name of her spouse. Unless, of course, you want a hyphenated name to show that you are your own person. 
and the two are not one flesh, and you want to be known for your own achievements and your own accomplishments. Brothers and sisters, how many of us with the Lord live with a hyphenated name? I'm a Christian, but I'm also Mark Chen. I'm a Christian, but I'm also a physician. I'm a Christian, but... And we have that hyphenated name where we just want to let people know we're our own person and we stand on our own work. And brothers and sisters, when we reject the name, we reject the love as well. And in Genesis 1.5, we see that God sets this precedent of what's in a name. It says in Genesis 1.5, God called the light day and the darkness He called night. And then as we go to Genesis 1.26-27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man, Adam, in our image. Male and female, He created them. We see here that the first man and woman are named by God. They're created by God. They're blessed by God. They belong to God. And their identity comes from their relationship with God. And brothers and sisters, that's a beautiful thing. They are not alone. They belong to the God who created them and cares for them. And even their gender-specific identity as the gender-specific image bearers of God expresses the name He has given to them. Then when we come to Genesis 2, verse 15 through 17, you can have a look there in your Bibles. It says, The Lord God puts this man who He's named in the garden. And he gives the man his command. And in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him, what? A helper fit for him. An edzer konegdo in Hebrew. There's a name here. And the name confers an identity. Now ladies, many ladies in this world and day and age in America, they don't like that identity. A helper fit for him. And in verse 19, the Lord God brings all the living creatures to the man to do what? What does he bring all the creatures to the man to do? You can say it. Verse 19, it says, to see what he would call them. And verse 20 says, then the man gave what? Names all the animals, to all the living creatures. And we see in this what the Lord is doing is He's extending through the first man in His Word His Lordship, His provision, His protection, His identity, not according to what we think best, but according to God's Word. And then through that naming process, there is not a helper fit for Him found. So what happens in verse 21 and 22? From the first man's rib, the Lord God creates a helper fit for him. And he brings her to the first man. And what is the first man's response? He identifies and he names her. Verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He gives her an identity. You're part of me. We're one. She shall be called woman. It's taken from the name for man. You're part of me. 
You've come from me. We are one flesh. And why does he give her this name? It says, because she was taken out of man. And we see here that the identity that's given to the woman is based upon not what she has done or accomplished or what she thinks is best. It's based on God's work in her life. Brothers and sisters, you don't need the power of positive thinking to get away from the trash of this world. It begins with appreciating the fact that you were created and fearfully and wonderfully made. Tall, short, smart, dumb. You were made by the Lord. You are a gift to the world. You're a testimony to God's work in your life. That's why you were created. Created by God from man and for man. To be equal, but to be different. To be a helper fit for Him. To be a one flesh image bearer of God. And we see how the name that the first man gives to the woman is a celebration of God's love and God's work in their lives. It's a celebration of what God's Word can accomplish in a piece of dirt or a rib. But what happens in Genesis 3? This one flesh identity and this one flesh relationship of God's Word that the first man is celebrating and jumping for joy for in Genesis 2 is shattered and betrayed by the first man in Genesis 3. And we see the gift of God the first man identifies and names as woman and bone of my bones possessive. Flesh of my flesh belongs to me in Genesis 2. In Genesis 3.12 is abandoned, this gift. This gift is blamed. This gift is named as the woman whom you gave to be with me. No longer mine. No longer my problem. Your problem. What you created, what you did, and what you put on me. Brothers and sisters, how often do those thoughts enter in our relationships? Relationships in church. Relationships with spouses. Relationships with children. With relationships with co-workers. Brothers and sisters, there's not that far of a jump from what Adam is saying here and what the ex-wife of the shooter described to the newspapers, and to the reporters this week. Adam essentially gives her a name that summarizes her as the one who led me into sin. And it's interesting on a separate note to see in the history of how much the church has been accused of misogynistic attitudes which paint women as temptresses and seductresses and the one who lead us into sin. Well, we see here in God's Word, it does not come from God. It does not come from the names He gives. It comes from the sin of man. And it begins with the men, brothers and sisters. 
very clearly the first man's lordship and his love and his first flesh relationship with the first woman is dead. He is divorced from her. And it's shown in the name that he gives when God puts him on the spot and he throws his wife under the bus by the name he gives her. The woman you gave to me. And brothers and sisters, this is true of any relationship that blames others for our sin. I say that, brothers and sisters, because there's no temptation or testing but such as is common to man. We've got a whole host of premaritals. You're getting ready for one of the greatest gifts that the Lord has given us. But singles, you need to celebrate that you have a greater relationship in Christ. And that God will save you from some grief because premaritals, you know when you get in there, when things are tough and you haven't had sleep and things are hard and you start to think you're getting the short end of the stick. The temptation to blame the person who is closest to you can be strong. And sadly, more often than not, than we care to admit, we give in to that. And when we do, brothers and sisters, what we've done is we've stopped believing that God is good, that He is sovereign, that He is in charge, that He knows what's going on and He's present. And He has provided a way through these hard times. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 10.13 when he says, There is no testing or temptation, but such as is common to man. But the Lord is going to provide a way through. And then he says, Flee from idolatry. Because he shows, more often than not, when we get to that point where we're blaming other people, what's ruling our life is not the worship of a good God or belief in His promises, which we've long forgotten. It's the disappointment in the promises from our idols. And this is why Ephesians warns us not to let the sun go down on our anger, lest the devil have a foothold in our lives. And it's why Scripture repeatedly talks about putting off bitterness and discontent, brothers and sisters. And when bitterness and discontent comes in, what it's showing us, brothers and sisters, and what we can name, is that sin has taken root in our lives, and the root of that sin is we've stopped believing that God is good and that He loves us, and we've stopped believing His promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Behold, I will be with you until the ends of the age or the ends of the earth. I will forgive you. I will care for you. You are my beloved. All of the promises of the cross... When we start to struggle with discontent, we've got to realize we're starting to slide down that slippery slope. And the rope, brothers and sisters, that brings us out are the promises of God and faith, not in our work, but the work of the Lord. In our family, we've been reading through Genesis, and we've been reading through with the boys the Joseph story. What is it that protected Joseph from becoming bitter and angry and ugly? If anybody had a reason to be bitter and angry and ugly, it was Joseph. If anybody had a reason to say, I've got a reason to sin. Why can't I be happy now? If anybody had a reason to say, I should be upset because I went to jail for doing what was right, not sleeping with Potiphar's wife, it would be Joseph. And yet what's remarkable 
through Joseph's life is his holiness and his love. What is it that protected it, brothers and sisters? Well, at the end, you know those famous words, what men or you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph never stopped believing in God, and he never stopped believing in the promises that God had made. That as ugly and as harsh as it seemed, one day the Lord God would make things right because God is true to His Word. And brothers and sisters, this is something initially that Adam loses sight of. It's from this heart of unbelief. But when we get to Genesis 3.20, what's Adam's response? We see that Adam does a remarkable 180 turn. He renames his wife. Verse 20 says, The man called his wife's name Eve. What is Adam doing here? He's renaming the woman he previously abandoned and blamed. And by renaming this woman before God, before God, he is reclaiming his wife before God. She belongs to me, because that's what naming is in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. He's taking her back. He's not blaming her anymore. And he's doing what he failed to do when the serpent appeared in the beginning of Genesis 3. Saying, this woman belongs to me. It's what he should have said when the serpent showed up. He's saying, she is my wife. She comes under my lordship, my provision, my protection according to God's word. And before God, he gives her a new name. Before it was woman, but now in 320, Adam calls his wife's name Eve. And it comes from the Hebrew word for life, not death. Verse 20, Moses explains, he names her Eve or calls her Eve because she was the mother of all living. Where exactly does Adam get this name from? In the justice and the judgment of God's Word. That's where he finds it. In Genesis 3, 15 and 16. The Lord God promises the first woman that she will be a mother. The Lord God promises in His justice that she will bring forth children, but now she will do so in pain. And though the serpent will bruise her offspring's heel, her offspring shall bruise the serpent's head. And herein lies the hope for life for sinners living in a world of death. Their hope will once again come from the promise and work of God in this woman who Adam initially cast off and blamed. And so Adam gives her a name. And what's interesting is Adam gives her a name not based on what she has done. And it's not even based because she hasn't had any children yet. He gives her a name based on what she will become, based on God's promise. And in Hebrew, when you go through the Old Testament, not infrequently, the prophets will write about the future in the past tense. They'll write about the future in the past tense. Why do they do that? Because if God has promised it, it is as good as completed. It has been done. If God has decreed it, it will happen. 
in the same way we see past events that have been completed. Adam's hope for his marriage, Adam's hope for humanity, Adam's hope for his family does not come based upon his work or what he is able to accomplish. It is hope in the sure promise of God's word that comes in God's justice and his judgment. Brothers and sisters, this is what repentance looks like. This is what faith looks like. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. At this point, Adam had not seen a child. He had only seen a sinner. But he trusted that what God said was true. Brothers and sisters, how do we move past our sin? How do we move past the sin of others? How do we move past the hurt that we have received at the hands of others who do intend evil for us, even as Joseph's brothers intended evil for him? How do we not get bitter and get stuck doing circles in a world of discontent? How do we with joy and gladness forgive How do we reflect the good news of the gospel and a God who is good and cares for us? Brothers and sisters, it is by faith in the promises of God and in the person of God. This brings us to our final point for this morning. Could you... Excellent. Thank you, men. Faith in the name of Jesus equals a new life and identity in Christ. Brothers and sisters, throughout Scripture, at key moments and special moments, where the Lord God gives someone a new name, it's typically a turning point. Abraham is given the name Abram. Jacob is renamed Israel. In the New Testament, Simon is given the name Cephas or Peter. Rocky or Little Rock. And these are turning points in an individual life where faith in God's Word and the promises takes them out of their old life and it takes them into a new life and a new identity that is framed by the Word of God. It brings them, brothers and sisters into God's plan of salvation and the promise of His work. And as the author of Hebrews goes on to point out, many of these did not see the promise completed. They only saw it in part. And yet they persevered and they reflected the love and the goodness and the grace and the truth of God rather than the bitterness and hatred and ugliness of this world. Why? Because they believed in what they could not see. A God who created the world by His Word. A God who is good and gracious and true. Who is who He says He is and keeps His promise. And as we come to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew begins with a list of names. 
Matthew 1.1, the book, the Biblios of the genealogy or Genesis, the new beginning of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And after that list, that genealogy of names that we are given, we're given the story of how Joseph, in confusion and fear, resolves to divorce Mary because he doesn't know what to do with the unborn child in her womb until the Lord steps in and an angel of the Lord appears. And in Matthew 1 verse 20, explains that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. Then Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Two names, brothers and sisters, that come from the Word of God. He will save us from our sins, and He will be God with us. Now here's the question, brothers and sisters. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe in the darkest moments where you're getting the short end of the stick, when people, even who profess the name of Christ, are not treating you well? Do you believe that He will save you from your sin? And do you believe that Christ is with you? Well, what's interesting, when you go to Philippians 4, and the Apostle Paul shepherds those who are dealing with anxiety, and they're also having a hard time getting along, he exhorts and commands them to rejoice in the Lord. And the reason that he gives to rejoice in the Lord is because he is near. It's the faith, brothers and sisters, that Christ is here in this room as we speak. That if you belong to God, he is with you and his spirit indwells in you. He has not left you alone in the dark to fend for yourself. You are precious in his sight. You belong to him. You bear his name. And Paul shows us, brothers and sisters, by faith, even in the darkest moments, God gives the worst of sinners a hope and a way and a path out of the darkness and into the light. Brothers and sisters, do we live that? And do we know that? I want to challenge you a little bit on our thoughts. When we are challenged, and those thoughts come to doubt God's Word and to believe the worst of the people around us, those who belong to Christ, who have confronted His justice and judgment, those who have repented, will call sin for what it is, malice, bitterness, and discontent. And instead, brothers and sisters, we will put on Christ and hope in the truth of His Word. And so that's why Paul exhorts us to take every thought captive. Every thought. Because, brothers and sisters, the moment we start to begin the lies of the devil, they didn't treat me right, maybe that's true, but where do we go from there? 
When we forget the sovereignty of God, we forget the name that we belong to. We forget this new identity. We forget that, yes, we may suffer. Yes, we may get the short end of the stick. But God still loves us. And if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt us in due time. Do we hope, brothers and sisters, for our spouses, even as Paul shepherds and says, even those who are living with unbelievers, don't abandon them. If they abandon you, let them go. But if an unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you, who knows whether or not they may be saved by your gospel testimony. Why did Paul say that? Because he abused people. And he saw what the risen Lord and the promises that were true were able to be transform him into an apostle who was gentle like a nursing mother with believers. Sinclair Ferguson writes, and I'll close with this. He said, I once had a delightful doctoral student from the Far East. His name was Timothy. But his family name was obviously Oriental. Once we got to know each other well enough, I engaged him in the following dialogue. Timothy, what's your real name? Timothy, he replied. Yes, I said, but what's your real name? And once again, he replied, Timothy. And realizing Timothy was leading me on, I tried once more, and this time I asked him, what name did your parents give you? And Timothy responded with an Asian name. So, I continued, that's your real name. You just chose Timothy because it would be familiar and easy for us Westerners. Perhaps you can guess what he said. No, he replied. Timothy is my real name. And then he added, that's the name I was given when I was baptized. I found his words deeply moving. But more than that, it made me realize that this scholarly young man understood his baptism. The name he was given then was his real name. It was the name that reminded him of who he really was. Someone who, in Jesus Christ, had been named for the Trinity. Someone who had died to his past life. Someone who was a new creation in Christ. As it happens, Timothy means honored by God. Christians, do you know your real name? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, You have given us life and You have given us hope. You are worthy of belief and faith. Lord Jesus, in all things and even in the darkest moments in these anxious times, would we push aside the fears of this world and instead would we celebrate the goodness of the God who died for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Let's stand as we sing this last song and as we sing of um, the God who gave His Son um, for um, wretches like us so that, um, like it says, we can be His treasure.